Section 18, Chapter 16 of Belinda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. Belinda by Maria Edgeworth. Section 18, Chapter 16 Domestic Happiness. There was an air of benevolence and perfect sincerity in the politeness with which Lady Anne Percival received Belinda, who was peculiarly agreeable to her agitated and harassed mind. "'You see, Lady Anne,' said Belinda, "'that I come to you at last, after having so often refused your kind invitations.' "'So you surrender yourself at discretion, just when I was going to raise the siege in despair,' said Lady Anne. "'Now,' I may make my own terms, and the only terms I shall impose are that you will stay at Oakley Park with us, as long as we can make it agreeable to you, and no longer. Whether those who cease to please, or those who cease to be pleased, are most to blame, it may sometimes be difficult to determine, so difficult, that when this becomes a question between two friends, they perhaps had better part than venture upon the discussion." Lady Anne Percival could not avoid suspecting that something disagreeable had passed between Lady Delacour and Belinda. But she was not troubled with the disease of idle curiosity, and her example prevailed upon Mrs. Margaret Delacour, who dined with her, to refrain from all questions and comments. The prejudice which this lady had conceived against our heroine, as being a niece of Mrs. Stanhope's, had lately been vanquished by the favourable representations of her conduct, which she had heard from her nephew and by the kindness that Belinda had shown to little Helena. "'Madame,' said Mrs. Delacour, addressing herself to Miss Portman, with some formality, but much dignity, "'permit me, as one of my Lord Delacour's nearest relations, now living, to return you my thanks, for having, as my nephew informs me, exerted your influence over Lady Delacour for the happiness of his family. My little Helena, I am sure, feels her obligations towards you.' and I rejoice that I have had an opportunity of expressing in person my sense of what our family owes to Miss Portman. As to the rest, her own heart will reward her. The praise of the world is but an inferior consideration. However, it deserves to be mentioned as an instance of the world's candour, and for the singularity of the case, that everybody agrees in speaking well even of so handsome a young lady as Miss Portman. "'She must have had extraordinary prudence,' said Lady Anne, "'and the world does justly to reward it with extraordinary esteem.' Belinda, with equal pleasure and surprise, observed that all this was said sincerely, and that the report which she had feared was public had never reached Mrs. Delacour or Lady Anne Percival. In fact, it was known and believed only by those who had been prejudiced by the malice or folly of Sir Philip Baddeley. Piqued by the manner in which his addresses had been received by Belinda, he readily listened to the comfortable words of his valet de chambre, who assured him that he had it from the best possible authority, Lord Delacour's own gentleman, Mr. Champfort, that his lordship was deeply taken with Miss Portman, that the young lady managed everything in the house that she had been very prudent, to be sure, and had refused large presents, but that there was no doubt of her becoming Lady Delacour, if ever his lordship should be at liberty. Sir Philip was the person who mentioned this to Clarence Hervey, 
and Sir Philip was the person who hinted it to Mrs. Stanhope, in the very letter which he wrote to implore her influence in favour of his own proposal. This manoeuvring lady represented this report as being universally known and believed, in hopes of frightening her niece into an immediate match with the baronet. In the whole extent of Mrs. Stanhope's politic imagination, she had never foreseen the possibility of her niece's speaking the simple truth to Lady Delacour, and she had never guarded against this danger. She never thought of Belinda's mentioning this report to her ladyship, because she would never have dealt so openly had she been in the place of her niece. Thus her art and falsehood operated against her own views, and produced consequences diametrically opposite to her expectations. It was her exaggerations that made Lady Delacour believe, when Belinda repeated what she had said, that this report was universally known, and credited her own suspicions, were by these means again awakened, and her jealousy and rage were raised to such a pitch that no longer mistress of herself she insulted her friend and guest. Miss Portman was then obliged to do the very thing that Mrs. Stanhope most dreaded, to leave Lady Delacour's house and all its advantages. As to Sir Philip Baddeley, Belinda never thought of him from the moment she read her aunt's letter till after she had left her ladyship. Her mind was firmly decided upon this subject, yet she could not help fearing that her aunt would not understand her reasons or approve her conduct. She wrote to Mrs. Stanhope in the most kind and respectful manner, assured her that there had been no foundation whatever for the report which had produced so much uneasiness, that Lord Delacour had always treated her with politeness and good nature, but that such thoughts or views as had been attributed to him, she was convinced, had never entered his lordship's mind, that hearing of the publicity of this report had however much affected Lady D. "'I have, therefore,' said Belinda, "'thought it prudent to quit her ladyship, and to accept of an invitation from Lady Anne Percival to Oakley Park. I hope, my dear aunt, that you will not be displeased by my leaving town without seeing Sir Philip Baddeley again. Our meeting could indeed answer no purpose, as it is entirely out of my power to return his partiality. Of his character, temper, and manners, I know enough to be convinced that our union could tend only to make us both miserable. After what I have seen, nothing can ever tempt me to marry from any of the common views of interest or ambition. On this subject, Belinda, though she declared her own sentiments with firm sincerity, touched as slightly as she could, because she anxiously wished to avoid all appearance of braving the opinions of an aunt to whom she was under obligations. She was tempted to pass over in silence all that part of Mrs. Stanhope's letter which related to Clarence Hervey, but upon reflection she determined to conquer her repugnance to speak of him, and to make perfect sincerity the steady rule of her conduct. She therefore acknowledged to her aunt that of all the persons she had hitherto seen, this gentleman was the most agreeable to her. But at the same time she assured her that the refusal of Sir Philip Baddeley was totally independent of all thoughts of Mr. Hervey, that before she had received her aunt's letter, circumstances had convinced her that Mr. Hervey was attached to another woman. She concluded by saying that she had neither romantic hopes nor wishes, and that her affections were at her own command. Belinda received the following angry answer from Mrs. Stanhope. Henceforward, Belinda, you may manage your own affairs as you think proper. I shall never more interfere with my advice. Refuse whom you please. Go where you please. Get what friends and what admirers and what establishment you can. 
I have nothing more to do with it. I will never more undertake the management of young people. There's your sister Tolomac has made a pretty return for all my kindness. She is going to be parted from her husband, and basely throws all the blame upon me. But tis the time with all of you. There's your cousin Jodrell refused me a hundred guineas last week, though the pianoforte and harp I bought for her before she was married stood me in double that sum, and are now useless lumber on my hands, and she never could have had Jodrell without them, as she knows as well as I do. As for Mrs. Levitt, she never writes to me, and takes no manner of notice of me. But this is no matter, for her notice can be of no consequence now to anybody. Levitt has run out of everything he had in the world, all his fine estates advertised in to-day's paper, an execution in the house, I am told. I expect that she will have the assurance to come to me in her distress, but she shall find my door shut, I promise her. Your cousin Valentin's match has, through her own folly, turned out like all the rest. She, her husband, and all his relations are at daggers drawing, and Valentin will die soon, and won't leave her a farthing in his will, I foresee, and all the fine Valentin estates goes to God knows whom. If she had taken my advice after marriage as before, it would have been all her own at this instant. But the passions run away with people, and they forget everything. Common sense, gratitude, and all, as you do, Belinda. Clarence Hervey will never think of you, and I give you up. Now manage for yourself as you please, and as you can. I'll have nothing more to do with the affairs of young ladies who will take no advice. Selina Stanhope. P.S. If you return directly to Lady Delacour's and marry Sir Philip Baddeley, I will forgive the past. The regret which Belinda felt at having grievously offended her aunt was somewhat alleviated by the reflection that she had acted with integrity and prudence. Thrown off her guard by anger, Mrs. Stanhope had inadvertently furnished her niece with the best possible reasons against following her advice with regard to Sir Philip Baddeley, by stating that her sister and cousins, who had married with mercenary views, had made themselves miserable and had shown their aunt neither gratitude nor respect. The tranquillity of Belinda's mind was gradually restored by the society that she enjoyed at Oakley Park. She found herself in the midst of a large and cheerful family, with whose domestic happiness she could not forbear to sympathize. There was an affectionate confidence, an unconstrained gaiety in this house, which forcibly struck her, from its contrast with what she had seen at Lady Delacour's. She perceived that between Mr. Percival and Lady Anne there was a union of interests, occupations, tastes, and affection. She was at first astonished by the openness with which they talked of their affairs in her presence, that there were no family secrets, nor any of those petty mysteries which arise from a discordance of temper or struggle for power. In conversation every person expressed without constraint their wishes and opinions, and wherever these differed, reason, and the general good were the standards to which they appealed. The elder and younger part of the family were not separated from each other. Even the youngest child in the house seemed to form part of the society, to have some share and interest in the general occupations or amusements. The children were treated neither as slaves nor as playthings, but as reasonable creatures, and the ease with which they were managed, and with which they managed themselves, surprised Belinda for she heard none of that continual lecturing which goes forward in some houses, to the great fatigue and misery of all the parties concerned, and of all the spectators. Without force, or any facetious excitements, the taste for knowledge and the habits of application were induced by example, and confirmed by sympathy. 
Mr. Percival was a man of science and literature, and his daily pursuits and general conversation were in the happiest manner instructive and interesting to his family. His knowledge of the world and his natural gaiety of disposition rendered his conversation not only useful, but in the highest degree amusing. From the merest trifles he could lead to some scientific fact, some happy literary illusion or philosophical investigation. Lady Anne Percival had, without any pedantry or ostentation, much accurate knowledge and a taste for literature which made her the chosen companion of her husband's understanding as well as of his heart. He was not obliged to reserve his conversation for friends of his own sex, nor was he forced to seclude himself in the pursuit of any branch of knowledge. The partner of his warmest affections was also the partner of his most serious occupations, and her sympathy and approbation, and the daily sense of her success in the education of their children, inspired him with a degree of happy social energy unknown to the selfish, solitary votaries of avarice and ambition. In this large and happy family there was a variety of pursuits. One of the boys was fond of chemistry, another of gardening, one of the daughters had a talent for painting, another for music, and all their acquirements and accomplishments contributed to increase their mutual happiness, for there was no envy or jealousy amongst them. Those who, unfortunately, have never enjoyed domestic happiness, such as we have just described, will perhaps suppose the picture to be visionary and romantic. There are others, it is hoped many others, who will feel that it is drawn from truth and real life tastes that have been vitiated by the stimulus of dissipation might perhaps think these simple pleasures insipid everybody must ultimately judge of what makes them happy from the comparison of their own feelings in different situations belinda was convinced by this comparison that domestic life was that which could alone make her really and permanently happy she missed none of the pleasures none of the gay company to which she had been accustomed at lady delacour's she was conscious at the end of each day that it had been agreeably spent, yet there were no extraordinary exertions made to entertain her. Everything seemed in its natural course, and so did her mind. Where there was so much happiness, no want of what is called pleasure was ever experienced. She had not been at Oakley Park a week before she forgot that it was within a few miles of Harrogate, and she never once recollected her vicinity to this fashionable water-drinking place for a month afterwards impossible some young ladies will exclaim we hope others will feel that it was perfectly natural but to deal fairly with our readers we must not omit to mention a certain mr vincent who came to oakley park during the first week of belinda's visit and who stayed there during the whole succeeding month of felicity mr vincent was a creole he was about two-and-twenty his person and manners were striking and engaging he was tall and remarkably handsome he had large dark eyes an aquiline nose fine hair, and a manly sunburnt complexion. His countenance was open and friendly, and when he spoke upon any interesting subject, it lighted up and became full of fire and animation. He used much gesture in conversation. He had not the common manners of young men who are, or who aim at being thought fashionable, but he was perfectly at ease in company, and all that was uncommon about him appeared foreign. He had a frank, ardent temper, incapable of art or dissimulation, and so unsuspicious of all mankind that he could scarcely believe falsehood existed in the world, even after he himself had been its dupe. He was in extreme astonishment at the detection of any species of baseness in a gentleman, for he considered honor and generosity as belonging indefeasibly, if not exclusively, to the privileged orders. 
His notion of virtue were certainly aristocratic in the extreme, but his ambition was to entertain such only as would best support and dignify an aristocracy. His pride was magnanimous, not insolent, and his social prejudices were such as in some degree to supply the place of the power and habit of reasoning, in which he was totally deficient. One principle of philosophy he practically possessed, imperfection. He enjoyed the present, undisturbed by any unavailing regret for the past, or troublesome solicitude about the future. All the goods of life he tasted with epicurean zest. All the evils he bore with stoical indifference. The mere pleasure of existence seemed to keep him in perpetual good humor with himself and others, and his never-failing flow of animal spirits exhilarated even the most phlegmatic. To persons of a cold and reserved temper, he sometimes appeared rather too much of an egotist, for he talked with fluent enthusiasm of the excellent qualities and beauties of whatever he loved, whether it were his dog, his horse, or his country. But this was not the egotism of vanity. It was the overflowing of an affectionate heart, confident of obtaining sympathy from his fellow-creatures, because conscious of feeling it for all that existed. He was as grateful as he was generous, and though high-spirited and impatient of restraint, he would submit with affectionate gentleness to the voice of a friend, or listen with deference to the counsel of those in whose superior judgment he had confidence. Gratitude, respect, and affection all conspired to give Mr. Percival the strongest power over his soul. Mr. Percival had been a guardian and a father to him. His own father, an opulent merchant, on his deathbed, requested that his son, who was then about eighteen, might be immediately sent to England for the advantages of a European education. Mr. Percival, who had a regard for the father arising from circumstances which it is not here necessary to explain, accepted the charge of young Vincent, and managed so well that his ward, when he arrived at the age of twenty-one, did not feel relieved from any restraint. On the contrary, his attachment to his guardian increased from that period, when the laws gave him full command over his fortune and his actions. Mr. Vincent had been at Harrowgate for some time before Mr. Percival came into the country, but as soon as he heard of Mr. Percival's arrival, he left half-finished a game of billiards, of which, by the by, he was extremely fond, to pay his respects at Oakley Park. At the first sight of Belinda, he did not seem much struck with her appearance, perhaps from his thinking that there was too little languor in her eyes, and too much colour in her cheeks. He confessed that she was graceful, but her motions were not quite slow enough to please him. It is somewhat singular that Lady Delacour's faithful friend Harriet Freke should be the cause of Mr. Vincent's first fixing his favourable attention on Miss Portman. He had a black servant of the name of Juba, who was extremely attached to him. He had known Juba from a boy, and had brought him over with him when he first came to England, because the poor fellow begged so earnestly to go with young Massa. Juba had lived with him ever since, and accompanied him wherever he went. Whilst he was at Harrowgate, Mr. Vincent lodged in the same house with Mrs. Freke. Some dispute arose between their servants, about the right to a coach-house, which each party claimed as exclusively their own. The master of the house was appealed to by Juba, who sturdily maintained his master's right. He established it, and rolled his master's curricle into the coach-house in triumph. Mrs. Freke, who heard and saw the whole transaction from her window, said, or swore, that she would make Juba repent of what she called his insolence. The threat was loud enough to reach his ears, and he looked up in astonishment to hear such a voice from a woman. 
but an instant afterwards he began to sing very gaily as he jumped into the curricle to turn the cushions, and then danced himself up and down by the springs, as if rejoicing in his victory. Second and third time Mrs. Freak repeated her threat, confirming it by an oath, and then violently shut down the window and disappeared. Mr. Vincent, to whom Juba, with much simplicity, expressed his aversion of the man-woman who lived in the house with them, laughed at the odd manner in which the black imitated her voice and gesture, but thought no more of the matter. Some time afterward, however, Juba's spirits forsook him. He was never heard to sing or to whistle. He scarcely ever spoke even to his master, who was much surprised by this sudden change from gaiety, who was much surprised by his sudden change from gaiety and loquacity to melancholy taciturnity. Nothing could draw from the poor fellow any explanation of the cause of this alteration in his humour, and although he seemed excessively grateful for the concern which his master showed about his health, no kindness or amusement could restore him to his wonted cheerfulness. Mr. Vincent knew that he was passionately fond of music, and having heard him once express a wish for a tambourine, he gave him one, but Juba never played upon it, and his spirits seemed every day to grow worse and worse. This melancholy lasted during the whole time that he remained at Harrowgate, but from the first day of his arrival at Oakley Park he began to mend. After he had been there a week, he was heard to sing and whistle and talk as he used to do, and his master congratulated him upon his recovery. One evening his master asked him to go back to Harrowgate for his tambourine, as little Charles Percival wished to hear him play upon it. This simple request had a wonderful effect upon poor Juba. He began to tremble from head to foot. His eyes became fixed, and he stood motionless. After some time he suddenly clasped his hands, fell upon his knees, and exclaimed, "'Oh, massa, Juba die! If Juba go back, Juba die!' And he wiped away the drops that stood upon his forehead. "'But me will go, if massa bid. Me will die!' Mr. Vincent began to imagine that the poor fellow was out of his senses. He assured him, with the greatest kindness, that he would almost as soon hazard his own life as that of such a faithful, affectionate servant, but he pressed him to explain what possible danger he dreaded from returning to Harrowgate. Juba was silent, as if afraid to speak. "'Don't fear to speak to me,' said Mr. Vincent. "'I will defend you, if anybody have injured you, or if you dread that anybody will injure you, trust me. I will protect you.' "'Oh, massa, you no can. Me die if me go back. Me no can say a word more, and he put his finger upon his lips and shook his head. Mr. Vincent knew that Juba was excessively superstitious, and convinced that if his mind were not already deranged, it would certainly become so, were any secret terror thus to prey upon his imagination. He assumed a very grave countenance, and assured him that he should be extremely displeased if he persisted in this foolish and obstinate silence. Overcome by this, Juba burst into tears and answered, "'Then me will tell all. This conversation passed before Miss Portman and Charles Percival, who were walking in the park with Mr. Vincent. At the time, he met Juba and asked him to go for the tambourine. When he came to the words, "'Me will tell all,' he made a sign that he wished to tell it to his master alone. Belinda and the little boy walked on, to leave him at liberty to speak, and then, though with a sort of reluctant horror, he told that the figure of an old woman, all in flames, had appeared to him in his bedchamber at Harrowgate every night and that he was sure she was one of the Obia women of his own country, who had pursued him to Europe to revenge his having once, when he was a child, trampled upon an eggshell that contained some of her poisons. The extreme absurdity of this story made Mr. Vincent burst out a-laughing, but his humanity the next instant made him serious, 
for the poor victim of superstitious terror, after having revealed what, according to the belief of his country, it is death to mention, fell senseless on the ground. When he came to himself he calmly said that he knew he must now die, for that the Obia woman never forgave those that talked of them or their secrets, and with a deep groan he added that he wished he might die before night, that he might not see her again. It was in vain to attempt to reason him out of the idea that he had actually seen this apparition. His account of it was that it first appeared to him in the coach-house one night when he went thither in the dark, that he never afterwards went to the coach-house in the dark, but that the same figure of an old woman, all in flames, appeared at the foot of his bed every night whilst he stayed at Harrowgate, and that he was then persuaded she would never let him escape from her power till she had killed him. That since he had left Harrowgate, however, she had not tormented him, for he had never seen her, and he was in hopes that she had forgiven him, but that now he was sure of her vengeance for having spoken of her. Mr. Vincent knew the astonishing power which the belief in this species of sorcery has over the minds of the Jamaican negroes. They pine and actually die away from the moment they fancy themselves under the malignant influence of these witches. He almost gave poor Juba over for lost. The first person that he happened to meet after his conversation was Belinda, to whom he eagerly related it, because he had observed that she had listened with much attention and sympathy to the beginning of the poor fellow's story. The moment that she heard of the flaming apparition, she recollected having seen a head drawn in phosphorus, which one of the children had exhibited for her amusement, and it occurred to her that perhaps some imprudent or ill-natured person might have terrified the ignorant negro by similar means. When she mentioned this to Mr. Vincent, he recollected the threat that had been thrown out by Mrs. Freak the day that Juba had taken possession of the disputed coach-house, and from the character of this lady, Belinda judged that she would be likely to play such a trick, and to call it as usual fun or frolic. Miss Portman suggested that one of the children should show him the phosphorus, and should draw some ludicrous figure with it in his presence. This was done, and it had the effect that she expected— Juba, familiarized by degrees with the object of his secret horror, and convinced that no Obia woman was exercising over him her sorceries, recovered his health and spirits. His gratitude to Miss Portman, who was the immediate cause of his cure, was as simple and touching as it was lively and sincere. This was the circumstance which first turned Mr. Vincent's attention towards Belinda. Upon examining the room in which the negro used to sleep at Harrowgate, the strong smell of phosphorus was perceived, and part of the paper was burnt on the very spot where he had always seen the figure, so that he was now perfectly convinced that this trick had been purposely played to frighten him, in revenge for his having kept possession of the coach-house. Mrs. Freak, when she found herself detected, gloried in the jest, and told the story as a good joke wherever she went, triumphing in the notion that it was she who had driven both master and man from Harrowgate. The exploit was, however, by no means agreeable in its consequences to her friend, Mrs. Lutridge, who was now at Harrowgate. For reasons of her own, she was very anxious to fix Mr. Vincent in her society, and she was much provoked by Mrs. Freak's conduct. The ladies came to high words upon the occasion, and an irreparable breach would have ensued had not Mrs. Freak, in the midst of her rage, recollected Mrs. Lutridge's electioneering interest, and suddenly, changing her tone, she declared that, she really was sorry to have driven Mr. Vincent from Harrogate, that her only intention was to get rid of his black. She would lay any wager that, with Mrs. Lettridge's assistance, they could soon get the gentleman back again, and she proposed, as a certain method of fixing Mr. Vincent in Mrs. Lettridge's society, 
to invite Belinda to Harrowgate. "'You may be sure,' said Mrs. Freke, "'that she must by this time be cursedly tired of a visit to those stupid good people at Oakley Park, and never woman wanted an excuse to do anything she liked, so trust to her own ingenuity to make some decent apology to the Percivals for running away from them. As to Vincent, you may be sure Belinda Portman is his only inducement for staying with that precious family party, and if we have her, we have him. Now we can be sure of her, for she has just quarrelled with our dear Lady Delacour. I had the whole story from my maid, who had it from Champfort. Lady Delacour and she are at Dagger's drawing, and it will be delicious to her to hear her ladyship handsomely abused. We are the declared enemies of her enemy, so we must be her friends. Nothing unites folks so quickly and so solidly as hatred of some common foe. This argument could not fail to convince Mrs. Lutridge, and the next day Mrs. Freak commenced her operations. She drove in her unicorn to Oakley Park to pay Miss Portman a visit. She had no acquaintance, either with Mr. Percival or Lady Anne, and she had always treated Belinda, when she met her in town, rather cavalierly, as an humble companion of Lady Delacour. But it cost Mrs. Freak nothing to change her tone. She was one of those ladies who can remember or forget people, be perfectly familiar or strangely rude, just as it suits the convenience, fashion, or humor of the minute. End of section 18. Chapter 16. Domestic Happiness. Recording by Tara Mendoza. Phoenix, Arizona. May 2011.